Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 15th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Can you believe it? Um, for those who have been joining us every week for the past few months, you know who I am, Jennifer Grossman, CEO of the Atlas Society, uh, and I'm introducing myself for those who are new because our online audience has been growing by, um, by leaps and bounds. So uh, before I even introduce my friend, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, I want to remind you guys joining us on Zoom, type, type away, type those little questions into that chat box and all of you guys on Facebook, ask whatever you want. Just try to keep them short if you can um, so that we can get to as many of them as possible. Uh, so Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Singer, um, is a general surgeon in private practice. He's been practicing for nearly 40 years. He's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, my old stomping ground. Uh, and he serves as a visiting fellow at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. I'll also mention um, that he happens to be almost a 30-year donor at the Atlas Society, which is pretty incredible. So we'll, maybe we'll get to his story with objectivism. But uh, he and I had the opportunity to, to get together recently, um, about a month ago, in Phoenix. And I was just so blown away by his breadth and depth of knowledge and experience on a range of topics, but specifically with regards to uh, health reform and opioids. So we're going to get to that. Jeffrey, Welcome again. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. So I, I just wanted to start off with a story that you shared with me over pancakes in Phoenix about um, your practice at the hospital and your surprising discovery that uh, you, you had COVID unbeknownst to you. So to just share a little bit of that, that personal story. Well, sure. Well, I, I, still practice as a general surgeon in addition to working at the Cato Institute. And uh, um, the hospital, this is uh, sometime in late May, because I've been, I've been going in and out of the hospital taking care of patients or seeing them in my office. So the hospital gave uh, antibody tests to all of the medical staff once the antibody test, uh, the good one by Abbott Labs became available. And uh, I never had symptoms. About 24 hours later, I get a phone call from them medical director of the hospital asked me, have you had a fever lately? No. Uh, feel extremely tired or you know, aches and pain? No, no. Turns out that I was positive for IgG, which is the antibody that your, your body produces at the tail end of the infection when, you know, this is, this is when you're already over the infection and you have uh, immunity. Um, and uh, so I was uh, another one of the many cases that we now know, we didn't know as much in the beginning, who was asymptomatic. Now, in January, February, and March, I'd been traveling a lot in airports. So I assume that's where I contact, contracted the, uh, the virus, but I never felt it. Then on top of that, um, as soon as I learned of that, I had my wife run down there and get the same test. She tested negative, which, came as a surprise, but then I started digging into the literature and actually there's a lot of research now coming from uh, Germany, uh, China, uh, that uh, suggests that people who are asymptomatic, even though they have the virus during the early stages of their infection, of course it's hard to know when they're infected if they don't have symptoms, but those who are asymptomatic 
actually have a much lower uh, incidence of spreading to their contacts in their household. One study in Guang, University of Guangdu, where they, where they tested people who were positive uh, and either had mild symptoms or no symptoms, and they told them to go quarantine with their family because the hospitals were overloaded. Plus, they weren't sick enough to be in the hospital. And then they followed up on them, and they found that in most cases, nobody else in that household came down with it. So kind of intuitively, it makes a little bit of sense anyway, because if you're not symptomatic, then you're not... Uh, you know, you're not okay, coughing, you're not sneezing, sneezing doing yeah. those kind of things. But still, uh, the, you know, the evidence is that you still have a lot of viruses in, in, in your mucous membranes. But now, again, we knew, know a lot more now than we did six, eight months ago. So there's, uh, again, this is a lot of this is all, you know, inconclusive. But, you know, for those who people know something about immunology, you have two types of lymphocytes, the B cells, which make the antibodies, and the T cells, which do a whole host of things, including just go after the bad guy by themselves. Plus they have a certain degree of memory and stimulate the, the B cells to make more antibodies once that original virus returns. So now one of the uh, theories that has a lot of plausibility to it that's being discussed is that the reason why up to 30 to 40% of people don't get any symptoms and uh, the overwhelming majority of people get like 90% of people get mild to moderate symptoms is because, uh, you know, the COVID-19 is a coronavirus and there are many common colds that are coronaviruses. And while they're not the same, they're, they're still in the same family. So we think that exposure to prior coronaviruses uh, has conferred a certain amount of memory to your T cells. And so then when the COVID-19 enters your body, this isn't the same coronavirus the T cells recognize, but they recognize enough of it that they, to a degree, go after it. And that's why you think that you don't get as sick. And that may also be why so many young children, you know, grade school age children don't seem to get very sick at all. And that's probably because they're always giving each other <laughs> colds all the time. So, I mean, this is not proven yet, but this is a, a very plausible theory that's, uh, that's being considered. And it kind of fits with, with, with me. And then after I shared my, I actually blogged about it at the Cato blog. And I got a lot of uh, communications from a lot of people saying, I have the same story. So I just thought that was interesting. It helped kind of uh, stimulated me to learn more about how this virus works. Well, and one of the people who responded to you that said he had the same story, of course, was another Atlas Society supporter and a fellow doctor, Senator Rand Paul, right? Right. Well, his his, uh, his his chief of staff. Yeah, spoke to him about. Yeah, yeah. He had a similar kind of story. He was he he was asymptomatic. He thought when this thing broke out, you know, with my history of my lung injury, I might be right. at uh, at greater risk. Maybe I ought to get tested. And to his surprise, he was positive, and he was criticized. But he really didn't think he had it. And then he quarantined with his family. For, 14 days and nobody in his household ever tested positive. Same kind of thing. That's not an unusual story. So it's important for people to kind of put this in perspective because there's, you know, there's a tendency for when the press reports on this, it's, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So you like to spend a whole lot of time talking about the bad cases and it could lead a lot of people to believe um, that, you know, it can lead a lot of people not to put things in their proper perspective. I'm not trying to say like some people say, oh, this is just like the flu. It's not. It's, 
it actually is more contagious and more deadly than the flu. But on the other hand, forgivingly, it's actually easier on young people than the flu. Um, and so uh, I just think that, you know, when you're making decisions about risks you're willing to take and trade-offs that we're willing to ask people to make, um, you know, we should not focus on um, just the, the bad outcomes, which it looks like it's going to be roughly 0.4% fatality rate, which is still about three times the fatality rate of the common flu. On the other hand, it's almost all skewed towards the very older population with mostly with a lot of uh, pre-existing medical vulnerabilities and is uh, and spares the younger. So the younger people, like the school-age kids, are actually at more risk of getting something serious from the common influenza than they are from this. It's fascinating. Well, what you talked about in terms of perspective really resonates. I like to say you can't be objective unless you have perspective. And uh, clearly we're continuing to learn a lot about this virus, how it spreads, um, and uh, what the impact is, including you know, major influences in terms of morbidity, such as obesity, um, which I think is a really important thing to keep in mind. But, I, I, you know, in terms of your perspective, having watched also this with uh, how the government has handled it, how um, do you see it as a doctor? What are some of the problems with how the government at various levels have um, handled this pandemic? Well, you know, uh, it's a couple of things. Number one, this is to people who are libertarians. This is this is a, a classic case of government failure on so many different levels, uh, federal, even global, state, local level. There's lots of government failure all the way down. I think we could all agree that a legitimate function of the government is to uh, operate in a public health crisis, you know, to prevent. It's sort of like getting invaded by a foreign army. So that's a legitimate function of the government. Well, it failed in its legitimate functions uh, on multiple levels. So first of all, uh, one of its important functions is to inform the public about it and it's whether or not it's serious and what steps they can take to protect themselves. Well, for a while there, it was telling us it's nothing to worry about. Then when it, when it became apparent that actually this is a serious infection, it could be a pandemic, that's when they, so they, they failed first on the information level, and then they asked everybody who they've been saying for several weeks, this is nothing to worry about, all of a sudden they said, forget about that, this is something to worry about, everybody listen up. Then you talk about the testing. So for example, as soon as the tests came out, um, the, uh, um, the, the, when, well, first of all, when when China finally admitted that they had a problem, they isolated the genome of the virus and shared it with the World Health Organization, which then shared it with the world, which is the way things are done. And the, uh, um, the, at, at that moment, a, a company in Germany, a uh, private biotech company developed a test and the German government said, go ahead and start using it. And the World Health Organization had purchased a bunch of these tests and started distributing it to countries particularly poor or less developed countries that didn't have the means to develop their own tests. Uh, South Korea, which had a bad experience back in uh, 2000, uh, 2009 uh, with MERS, they uh, learned from that mistake and they said they've actually passed the law saying next time there's a, a public health emergency, 
private sector, go ahead and develop tests. Don't wait for us to approve it. Just inform us, keep us in a loop. We'll monitor it, but get it out there. And then after the fact, we'll kind of keep an eye on things. Well, that's not how it worked in our country. So here we're supposed to be the beacon of free enterprise to the rest of the world. And we kind of behaved the way I would have expected, you know, East Germany to behave. So the um, World Health Organization gave the genome to the, to, um, <coughs> the FDA, which then gave it to the CDC. And the CDC uh, was told by the, the FDA has to approve all tests in this country. And the FDA basically gave emergency authorization to the CDC to develop a test and then sent out word to all other labs in this country, both public and private, that if, if you, you are interested in developing a test, you first have to have it run it by the CDC and see how it measures up to the test they're developing. And it kind of sent the message that the CDC's got this. And so all of the other labs that would have been considering it didn't do anything because it would have to go through CDC first before the FDA will even consider giving approval. So it basically had a, a government monopoly developing a test. And then in late February, when the test was supposed to get out there, we needed it out there in a lot of places. So we knew who has to, who we need to set, because when you really, when you're trying to manage an epidemic, you want to separate the, the contagious people from the non-contagious people. Well, how are you going to know that without testing? So they, it turns out they had underestimated how many tests they needed. This is a government monopoly. They only sent it out to a couple of centers. And then when they started using it, it didn't work. So it's like, not only was, did we follow the East German model in developing and approving the test, but our test was like the Trabant, you know, it worked just as well. So finally, almost, you know, playing catch up, the FDA at the end of February, beginning of March, started telling a lot of private sector and, you know, public labs, university labs, sort of what South Korea did. It said, you have our permission to get started. Go ahead, don't, don't wait for us, just get going with it and keep us in the loop. And then finally in mid-March, as, as we were still playing catch up, they uh, told governors, listen, you governors, uh, it, it, your states, you could decide what tests you wanna allow in your states as well. You don't have to wait for it to be an FDA approved test. So that way healthcare practitioners could either use a test that was given emergency authorization by the FDA or was approved by their state. You got those two options. And that's when things started to really catch up. Those are things, of course, that we could look in hindsight. These, these should have been in effect way before then. So there's a lot we could learn from this as, as to how to reform uh, policies going forward, particularly when it comes to FDA regulation and, and approval of tests and drugs. So that's just on that level. Then on a local level, we had lots of problems. For example, one of the biggest obstacles is medical licensing laws. In fact, all occupational licensing laws are obstacles to allow new entrants into a field. As I'm sure this audience knows, the only, the most, the biggest advocates of licensing laws are the people in the business, the, the incumbents. And of course, they try to sell the public on, you need to have restrictions on who can do what we do because other people may not be as safe as we are. So we're only thinking of you. And so occupational licensing laws are on all fields limit new entrants, restrict competition, and usually licensing boards eventually get captured by the licensees who have a lot of say over uh, what the, the new rules are gonna be for new, new uh, entrants. Well, the same is the case with medical licensing laws. So uh, here, everybody's asked to confine 
to their homes because we're afraid people are going to catch the virus and you can't get to your doctor. And in every single state, you know, telemedicine uh, is a technology, actually, it's not new. It's, you know, this technology has been around, is being used for, in other sectors for years, but it's been stunted in healthcare because of licensing laws. So in, in every state, including my own, I can't practice telemedicine across state lines. So I can only deliver telemedicine to patients within my own state. Or if I want to deliver telemedicine to patients in another state, I got to get a license to practice in that state as well. So that made it very difficult, particularly for people living remote, in remote areas to get healthcare. So all, all, all the governors suspended that as an emergency that, you know, we're gonna allow uh, you to practice across, telemedicine across state line. And the federal government said, and Medicare will pay for it because Medicare wasn't even paying for the delivery of telemedicine. Um, that's one thing. Then lots of states had shortages of healthcare practitioners on all levels, nurses, doctors, all sorts of uh, healthcare practitioners because of occupational licensing laws. So in many states, the governor said, if you have a license in any other state, come on over, don't worry about that you don't have a license here, we need you, we're temporarily suspending those requirements. Come over, please help our patients. And in some cases, they were even saying this to foreign doctors. I had a conference on this last month at the Cato Institute. Many people may not be aware of this, but you could be uh, an experienced medical specialist who graduated a, a, you know, a reputable medical school in let's say Syria, and you've been practicing for 10 years, and uh, rendering excellent care, you want to come to America because you don't want to live in Syria. Well, states in the United States would require that you repeat the entire postgraduate training that, uh, that you had to do to become what you are. So for example, a general surgeon has to do five years of, we call it nowadays postgraduate training, old school term is residency. So you could have been a surgeon for 10 years already. You did your residency 10 years ago. Now, if you want to come and practice in the United States, get a license to practice in any state, you've got to do a, a residency all over again. And you, you may not have the, you may not, first of all, want to go through that, you know, demoralizing experience. Plus you have a, you know, maybe a family support, you can't go through this again. So you have lots of, of doctors who are able to emigrate to this country and they're like driving Ubers or waiting tables or working in restaurants. Um, so um, uh, what they did, many states said, if, if you're, a, a healthcare practitioner who fits that description, we're temporarily suspending those requirements. Come over here, help our patients. So what I'm concerned about is most of these emergency measures, what they're basically doing is they're tacitly admitting that all of these regulations that have been in place uh, have stood in the way of the rapid and nimble response to, to a healthcare crisis. And if if these are important to get out of the way when a, we have a crisis, they shouldn't be important to get away all the time because not just wait for the next crisis, but they should tell us that in general, these things are getting in the way of, of, of delivering healthcare to people who want it and where it's needed. Uh, other state laws, there's a thing called certificate of need laws, um, where um, this is about 35 states still, uh, where if you want to add, depending on the state, let's say you want to add a wing onto the hospital or add some more beds, or in some states, if you just want to add another MRI machine or add uh, a new uh, section to your clinic, 
you have to apply to a committee, a state committee, that has to decide there is a need for this. And usually the committee is either stocked with your competitors or at least influenced by your competitors. So an, an analogy would be, let's say we had a certificate of need law for restaurants and you got this really neat idea for a brand new concept in cuisine and dining and you want to open up a restaurant. Let's say it's, uh, you know, Asian fusion. And uh, so first you have to apply to the restaurant certificate of need board and the restaurant certificate of need board, which is, you know, staffed by many restaurant owners, looks over your proposal and says, well, actually, we got enough Asian fusion restaurants, so we're going to have to say no. That's what goes on right now in 35 states. So when in my state, we're one of the states in Arizona that doesn't have that, neither does California. So when our uh, hospital administrators in Arizona had already gotten wind that there could be a, a, a bad epidemic heading our way, they already started taking steps. They added beds to parts of the hospital that aren't ordinarily stocked with beds. Uh, you can convert the cafeteria into a ward, for example, if you need to, things like that. Uh, they didn't have to get permission from some bureaucratic committee. They just did it. But in other states, governors had to temporarily suspend these laws to allow these hospitals and clinics to, to make these changes. And some states didn't. I'm, I'm told that Kentucky still kept the certificate of laws in place. So these are just a few examples. So what, what we basically, there was basically a whole cascade of problems that this public health emergency revealed to the public. So, you know, if you're a glass half full kind of person like I am, you know, I see in this an opportunity actually uh, to be able to say, let's look at all the lessons we can learn from this. Look at all the things we should be revisiting, because if we don't, we're going to go back to the status quo, Andy, and it's just it's just going to happen again. So there's a great opportunity for a whole bunch of things like FDA reform, eliminating eliminating licensing, uh, eliminating certificate of need laws. Uh, I can go on and on about different kind of reforms about that. But there's a lot of opportunities for. On the other hand. Is another thing that, as a libertarian, I fear because we all know about the ratchet effect. And if anybody hasn't read Robert Higgs' book *Crisis and the Life*, and I highly recommend it because it's a great um, documentation of the, the ratchet effect in action historically. But basically, it's it's uh, as Randolph Bourne said: "War is the health of the state." And this is sort of an equivalent to war. Every time there's a crisis, uh, power accrues to the state, and some of it's necessary in order to to prosecute, you know, to to deal with a crisis. And people are asked to surrender a certain amount of their liberties. But when the crisis passes, the power never of the state never recedes completely to the pre-crisis level. And the people have gotten just a little more comfortable having given up their liberties. And that's, so that's the, the glass half empty side of this thing, the other side of the coin that I worry about. I see people uh, uh, are so driven by fear uh, that they're allowing in some, in some states, some governors seem to have, there's no logic behind some of the edicts that they're, that, that, that they're um, you know, passing. And, and people are putting up with it because 
they're they're afraid. It's, it's you know, it's anybody read Atlas Shrugged knows there's uh, fear could drive people to um, give up a lot of freedom in 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 hopes of getting security, and then they they have neither. Well, um, that's so true. And of course, uh, Atlas Shrugged is a, is a classic tale of, of crony capitalism and, uh, and its impact on, on progress, on individual life, on liberty. Um, you talked about uh, this crisis, the, uh, the crisis of dealing with the virus. But, um, and I also wanted to just, uh, for people who'd like to hear more about Dr. Singer's thoughts on occupational uh, licensing, he is going to be moderating a Cato uh, online event on September 14th. So um, check that out, whatever we can do to help promote it. We, we love our partnership Thank you. with Cato. Um, and, uh, but you, you've also written extensively prior to, to all of this on, and I don't even know if the crisis is, is the best way to describe it, because as you say, when you can trigger fear, you can grab power. And so um, when people talk about the, the opio opioid crisis, if that is even the correct way to talk about it, um, what has happened with that, with opioid use, opioid overdoses, uh, during the during this epidemic, and what's the solution? Yeah. And by well, the way, of, reminder everybody, do ask your questions because um, we are going to get to them real shortly. Well, um, uh, first of all, I don't like to call it an opioid crisis. I actually call it a, a prohibition crisis. That's what I call it. Um, and not only that, but the term opioid is often, you know, misleading. A lot of people when they hear the word opioid, they're thinking of a prescription painkiller, like. You know, Percocet or something like that. When actually, medically speaking, opioid is just a whole category of drugs, just like coronavirus is a whole class of viruses. So, for example, heroin is an opioid. Fentanyl is an opioid. Um, there are a lot of opioids. So, what what really has kind of frustrated me is back in the early part of this century, um, uh, the policymakers and the press, because you know, I think it was Mencken who said that for every problem, there's a real simple explanation and solution, both of which are wrong. So they like simple explanations. I didn't, that's a paraphrase. Anyway, um, the, uh, so they, they locked into this idea that because doctors have been prescribing more painkillers in recent years than ever before, and uh, in the early part of the 2000s, a lot of the people who were using what the what's called diverted prescription pain pills that means they're they've been diverted into the black market and they've been using that either recreationally or whatever um, that therefore the cause of the overdose crisis because there's been there's been an increasing overdose rate for, for decades and suddenly kind of hit critical mass and the cause of the overdose crisis is these doctors who were conned by the evil pharmaceutical companies into overprescribing pain medicine for their patients. And now they turned all their patients into drug addicts. That was, that, and that narrative still won't go away, despite whatever the evidence shows. So that's, that's what the evidence showed. I mean, that's what the, the narrative said. Well, in fact, um, in the early part of the, uh, about the 1970s, 1980s, when I was just starting in practice, we clearly were under-medicating people for pain. Uh, and this, uh, there have been numerous articles in the medical literature pointing that out. 
and I can attest to it because I was in medical school at the height of President Nixon's war on drugs and his whole drugs are bad kind of thing. And uh, we doctors were indoctrinated into, into under-prescribing opioid, like morphine, Demerol, uh, Vicodin, whatever, because we can get people hooked. And the patients were being told the same thing. I remember making rounds on my patients in the early 80s, post-surgical patients, and they, they clearly in pain, you know, sweaty, hyperventilating. And I say, uh, you know, if you, I told the nurse to bring you some morphine. All you have to do is ring the buzzer and you'll get morphine because that's what it's there for. No, 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 I don't want to get addicted. And so you had it on both sides of the bed. The doctor and the patient were afraid that if you take an opioid for pain, you'll get addicted. Well, by, it became apparent by the early 90s that that, that was wrong. And many studies had shown that when used in a medical setting, the addiction rate is actually extremely low, including even recent reports by Dr. Norovaco, the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse in the New England Journal of Medicine just a few years ago, pointing that that is extremely rare. And eventually, we doctors were um, urged by anything from the NIH to the HHS to you name it, to start loosening up and taking care of your patient's pain and the patients were told to overcome their fear of getting addicted. So by the late 90s, early 2000s, we were prescribing more than ever, and patients were accepting it. So, but research has shown that the overdose rate from the non-medical use of either licit or illicit drugs has been on a steady exponential increase since at least the late 1970s. University of Pittsburgh published a great study on this back in, in 2018, and you can see just a straight curve. The only thing that has changed over the decades is which particular drug is predominating among the causes of the overdoses. So in the 70s and early and 80s, it was heroin. Then it became cocaine and stimulants. Then in the 90s, it was Vicodin. Then in the early O's, it was Oxycontin, which is just a concentrated oxycodone, which is Percocet. But then around 2010, it switched to heroin. And then it became heroin and fentanyl. And now it's like 90% heroin and fentanyl. 10% is diverted prescription opioids. And guess what? Meth is back. Remember back in 2005 when, we, when Congress fixed the meth crisis? Remember those uh, TV commercials with the bad, showing people with bad teeth? So they passed a law telling, making those of us who get good relief from Sudafed, which is a great decongestant. Now we had to uh, you know, show your driver's license and you got to get it from, from a pharmacist and you only allowed a certain amount a month in two states, Oregon and Mississippi, they made a prescription for Sudafed. So, and then the, the, the uh, SWAT team started going after all of these uh, meth labs that were all over the, in all different neighborhoods. So that was, that meth was about the only drug that the cartels from Mexico weren't involved in smuggling into the U.S. because there were so many homegrown meth labs that it was just no market for it. But this opened up the market. So within a year, the meth started coming in from Mexico. And then when Mexico was pressed by the US to make Sudafed behind the counter also, well, now you have these sophisticated cartels involved in it. So they quickly found out, as anybody who's ever seen Breaking Bad knows, you can make meth much more efficiently out of phenyl-2-propanone or P2P. So they started switching to that. And now, in the latest numbers from the CDC, the most recent numbers, uh, methamphetamine is up 10% over last year, meth-related meth deaths. And in fact, it's rising, it's at all-time, 
historic levels, meth-related deaths, and is rising faster than deaths from fentanyl or anything else. Some people use fentanyl to even out the meth, and some people use meth to even out the fentanyl. So some people like to combine the two. In any case, so we're, meanwhile, like a broken record, the policymakers keep passing these laws telling doctors how many opioids they can prescribe for patients based upon what their problem is, what the dose they can prescribe. You know, I don't know how many opioids my post-surgical patient is going to need. I don't know what dose is going to take to control that person's pain because everybody's different. Some people don't need much of anything. Some people need more than others. But somehow the politicians in the government, they can figure out just how much. And then the Drug Enforcement Administration is each year now, talk about central plan, talk about East Germany. Their job is to figure out how many opioids of all categories, from you know intravenous morphine to intravenous fentanyl to Vicodin pills, how many need to be manufactured in the coming year to control the pain of 330 million Americans. They know they presume to know how many, and then we develop shortages in the hospitals because the quotas were too too small. So this is what's going on now. And at this very minute, there's a bill that was introduced in, in, in the House of Representatives to further crack down on doctors prescribing pain pills to their patients. So we got people now who are getting, we're back to the 60s and 70s, people getting undermedicated for their pain. A lot of them in desperation are turning to the black market where they're getting counterfeit Percocet or oxycodone made out of smuggled in fentanyl. By the way, almost all the fentanyl that you hear about in the overdose death statistics is illicit fentanyl. The fentanyl that's made by pharmaceutical manufacturers is almost always in an injectable form. Sometimes it's a, in a, a, a lozenge form or a, a little thing you put inside your, the, the inside of your cheek, like a, you know, those kind of things that Listerine makes for your tongue, for your breath, that kind of thing. Or another popular way is skin patches where it gets absorbed slowly through your skin over about three days. But the kind of fentanyl that's being used is mixed in with heroin or cocaine. It's a powder that's made in clandestine labs in Mexico, mainly in Asia, China. Uh, it, it's made very easily. And as soon as we press the Chinese government to tell these labs to stop making fentanyl, they say, okay, so then we'll make sufentanyl. Or what, there's so many different carfentanyl, they're different analogs. It's just a matter of adding another little you know, carbon molecule. Uh, so that's what's happening. So fentanyl is being smuggled into the United States, sometimes in the mail and UPS, FedEx. A lot of uh, uh, dealers have these pill presses and they're pressing fentanyl into counterfeit prescription pain pills and then selling them to people. In fact, that's how um, Prince died. The you know oh. the act the artist Prince. He liked to use. Or artist formerly known as Prince. Formerly known. It's actually the formerly alive artist. Right. formerly known as Prince. So he uh, liked to use Vicodin recreationally. That was his drug of choice. So he, um, his dealer went and got him some Vicodin, but his dealer apparently was, didn't know that he was buying fentanyl made to look like Vicodin. And the, the, the uh, coroner's report showed it was fentanyl that killed him. And by the way, he never once went to a doctor for prescription. The data shows that almost uh, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 75% of people who use diverted prescription pain pills non-medically never go to a doctor. They get it from a dealer or a friend or something like that. Mm. So uh, now this, this pandemic has made things even worse because there are chronic pain patients 
who are already uh, being cut off by their doctors, who are afraid of getting arrested by the DEA for overprescribing, which means not prescribing according to the way the policemen think they should be prescribing to their patients in pain. And so they're in fear cutting patients off. And now these patients can't even get into a doctor because these doctor's offices are closed. And then you have people who actually truly have addiction and they're getting, uh, they're having more and more difficult time getting uh, uh, into harm reduction programs. The needle exchange programs that are preventing overdoses by handing out naloxone, the antidote, and preventing the spread of HIV. Well, they're not around because everybody's quarantined. And uh, it's, it's more difficult for the methadone programs and the other what's called medication-assisted treatment programs to function. And then yes. another thing is when you're trying to recover from addiction, one of the keys is most people with addiction have a sense of loss of connectedness. They're very uh, kind of alienated and isolated. And the treatment involves getting a new sense of connection because it's a behavioral disorder. And um, the last thing you need when you're trying to establish a feeling of connectedness with a person who's trying to overcome addiction is to I quarantine them in isolation for six months. Doesn't usually help. That's, that's a really good point. Well, we were talking earlier, I want to get to a couple of these um, questions from the audience okay. who are talking about different populations uh, with regards to COVID. Roy Miller wants to know, uh, when you're talking about legalizing drugs, what, what age limits? Are there, should, should there be age limits? Uh, well, I, I see no problem. I'm talking about adults. You know, right. uh, just like alcohol is and should be legal for adults, and tobacco is and should be legal for adults. Uh, I'm not talking about legalizing necessarily any drugs for children. Although, you know, the children right now could go into a store and buy Tylenol over the counter or, or uh, you know, um, ibuprofen over the counter. But I'm not talking about these drugs that have a dangerous potential being uh, available to minors. I'm talking about adults. That's 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 what I'm saying here. But any, as far as I'm concerned, any kind of drug at that point, because an adult has a right to decide what to put into their body, and one of our most fundamental rights is the right to self-medicate. Um, and uh, I don't think that I should have to ask permission from another autonomous adult before I put something into my body, even if I'm making a mistake. That'll be, you know, my decision and uh, I'll, I'll face the consequences of my mistake. But I shouldn't have to ask anybody else if it's okay with them. So uh, Jeff Minder, hey Jeff, I'm so glad you were able to join us. Uh, he uh, has a private company that, that were um, the first in the world to train dogs to find the COVID-19 virus. Um, have you heard anything about uh, these testing capabilities using canines? I've heard about it in press reports, but I really don't don't know enough about it to uh, to really comment. I I mean, it makes sense to me that when people have a certain kind of illnesses, sometimes you know dogs have such a sensitive sense of smell, and, and people with certain kind of illnesses, to dogs they they may be able to pick up some you know aroma from them. Uh, humans often don't don't uh, notice that, although. In certain diseases, like people in kidney failure or liver failure, they actually have an aroma that we doctors can notice on them. But, you know, our sense of smell is nothing like a dog. So that aroma has got to be pretty pungent before we notice it. Fascinating. So uh, we have another question, of course. Um, 
who is John Galt. So we would love to hear about your your fascinating origin story with um, the ideas of Ayn Rand. Tell us about how you first came across her and your intellectual journey with those ideas. Uh, well, I was uh, actually an undergraduate college student at the time in the in the uh, 60s. Actually, I started college in 1969, early 70s, and this was the height of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of campus activity, campus unrest. And um, uh, I grew up in a liberal democratic household, very pro-labor union, blue collar. I'm here. My dad, my dad was a taxi driver, and my mom worked as a legal secretary. And uh, um, they actually were, my whole family was very, always having animated discussions over politics. So I grew up kind of in an atmosphere where I thought, you know, these ideas, ideas mattered and you get excited about it. You have arguments over it. So uh, that was sort of kind of drilled into me, I guess, by osmosis. And then when I, when I started college, I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I really never had a chance to think about how I think about these things. You know, I just was sort of parroting what I was kind of growing up with. And most of what I was growing up with was sort of the majority view when I entered college. And so I just decided, the part of me was, I guess, I must admit, it was sort of my own rebelliousness too. I decided I'm not gonna let anybody tell me how I should think, I'm gonna decide for myself how I should think. So sort of I intentionally um, started looking at what the opposing point of view had to say, just because I never gave that, that view a chance. And so I started looking at, this was, remember, early 70s, I started looking at uh, conservative uh, literature, which was the opposite of everything I was seeing. And uh, contrary to what I had been led to believe, the conservatives, at least rhetorically, said they believed in limited government, individual liberty. And I, to me, that's, of course, who's not for individual liberty and limited government? That was like, to me, a, a no-brainer. But then as I started uh, reading a lot of conservative literature, I was starting to have problems because another thing about me and probably, I imagine this is what makes every, every libertarian would say this. I, I'm a real uh, stickler for consistency. Uh, and, and, and I was noticing inconsistencies. Um, and uh, I had, I was, I remember I was, I'd walk around with a copy of either uh, National Review or Human Events, which were about the only two publications back then that were available that were intellectual and sort of on the right. And one, one classmate of mine, in, in, I was pre-med in my microbiology class, saw what I was reading and he came over to me and I guess he saw there was somebody who also didn't think like everybody else. And he said, have you ever read Atlas Shrugged? And I, I said, no, I, I probably will someday because I saw how big the book was and I, you know, I had my, it was the same size as my organic chemistry textbook. And you know, 1,000 page book is enough for me. So, um, but I did make a little, um, uh, con uh, concession. I read Anthem because that was a quick read over a weekend and I enjoyed it. So anyway, one day I was actually in an argument. Did I tell you this, by the way? I was in an argument. You told me, but you didn't tell. I wanted you to tell okay. me. I didn't remember what I told you. I was in an argument with uh, like the, the SDS, Students for Democratic Society. I don't think they're in existence anymore, but they were one and more. I guess they were the early 70s version of Antifa. Okay. And they were actually more. They weren't violent, though. <laughs> uh, and we were having a, an argument uh, over 
capitalism versus socialism, which is does the most good for the most people, or something like that, uh, out on the quadrangle, and um, and it was a debate, and it was actually you know friendly, and a crowd was gathering around us, and in the crowd was this classmate of mine, and the next class I had to go to in about fifteen minutes was the microbiology class. Anyway, he asked me a question about well, in your ideal society, well, who would take care of the poor people, and I I. I believe it or not, I wasn't ready for that question. And I kind of quickly kind of finagled an answer. And while I'm giving him the answer, I myself, I'm not satisfied that that's a real well thought out answer. I see a lot of holes in it. But fortunately, he wasn't as much of a stickler for logic and consistency as I was. So he kind of didn't, he kind of accepted my response. I thought I got away with it. And then we sort of all had, a, it kind of broke up because we all had to get to the next class. And the member of the crowd who's the uh, Atlas Shrugged uh, proponent, he made eye contact with me and we walked together to the building where the microbiology class was. was and he said, you know, you're never gonna be able to defend capitalism properly until you can defend it as a moral system. It's not just the economic system. You really should read Atlas Shrugged. And that sort of convinced me. So I ended up reading Atlas Shrugged, and uh, that's a very common story. My generation, that a lot of times was their entry into libertarianism. Now, I'm, I guess, a hippie of the left, because that's what Ayn Rand thought of libertarianism. Hippie, you're a hippie of the left. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so that was my introduction. And then, then I went to med school and then uh, did my residency. And uh, I kept subscribing to different publications. I kept because that was always my other passion, but I really didn't have a lot of time for anything except, you know, buckling down and learning. And then I had to start a practice. I started a solo practice all by myself. So for several years, it was, I, I'd find time to read uh, political philosophy and public policy. And I started subscribing to, you know, Reason Magazine, and I became a donor to the Cato Institute. Uh, and it, it wasn't until the uh, uh, the 90s when my practice had really become mature and established. I, I had a couple of partners. We gave ourselves personal days. And being the unusual person I was on my personal day, instead of using that day to play golf and get a haircut and stuff like that, like my two partners did, I used those days to write and get involved in ballot propositions and become sort of an activist. And that's how I got into this and that grew and grew and grew. And my, I, I must say that uh, I'm still very much influenced by objectivism, but I've also become more of an independent thinker over the years. So um, there might, I know there are some areas where um, I would part ways with Ayn Rand, particularly on more derivative things. I, I still think that her um, discussion of uh, ethics and uh, the nature of rights, nature of man's rights, basically uh, you know, segue into into political theory, that I'm 100% on board with that. That makes the most sense to me. Uh, on some areas like foreign policy, aesthetics, uh, we part ways. And uh, I've, I've been introduced, and I'm all, I, I, I guess I might say also, I'm, I'm, I'm still an atheist, uh, but I'm much more tolerant than I used to be. <laughs> because working with life and death situations, yes. people in all walks of life, and being a libertarian with libertarian sensibilities, you know, my attitude is, you know, 
whatever works for you, that's you know, that's fine. I'm glad it's working for you. That's I, I it doesn't work for me. I don't need that for me. But you know, I'm a live and let live kind of guy. Well, we will uh, claim you um, as an open objectivist in addition to, to being a, um, a libertarian, as someone who uh, does understand, I think, the unique um, resources, intellectual resources, persuasive resources that Ayn Rand brings to the debate about liberty. So um, getting back, though, to what we were talking earlier with uh, the pandemic and also the psychological factor of the fear, Vicki wants to know, um, in your practice, do you come across patients who have an outsized you know, the, the, the fear that they have about their personal risk and um, exposure to coronavirus. Do you come across that and how do you handle it? Do you have ways of, of coping with them or are you just like, well, I'm here to give you a operation and that's what I'm going to do? Well, it's interesting because the way I experience it is in people not coming. So, wow. yeah. Yeah. so the first thing that happened, and I've written about this too. So again, these and I want to—I actually want to talk about this. So then, uh, some governors in some states, like in New York and California and Michigan, they just went, you know, whole hog and basically put under people under home arrest and give the statewide equivalent to martial law. Some had curfews, all that kind of thing. Um, and then that started almost the competition among governors. Each one didn't want to be perceived or reported in the press as being sort of too carefree not concerned about the welfare of their state's residents. So they had to do something. So the governor of my state in the beginning, I think the end of March, imposed a lockdown. And the virus really hadn't made much way, made its way to Arizona yet. So there were very few cases. And he put a six week ban on all elective procedures. Now, a lot of people think elective right. means like frivolous, like you know, cosmetic surgery or something. No, elective just means you could schedule it. It doesn't have to be done this second, as opposed to emergency, but it doesn't mean it's not necessary. So basically practices, surgical practices were locked out. The only, the only thing we surgeons can do is take care of people who are showing up in emergency rooms with emergencies like a perforated gallbladder or ulcer or something. And even then what we were seeing in the emergency rooms were people coming in in much worse shape than we usually see them. So we've seen people coming with a ruptured appendix that ruptured five days ago and they were, they were on oh death's God. doorstep because they were afraid to go to the emergency room where they might catch the virus. Instead, they were gonna die from ruptured appendix or people who were letting their heart failure go until, until it was really bad. So that was happening. So the first six weeks we, we were getting, there was nothing going on. Then the governor, when, when it was obvious that nobody was getting, there were many cases in Arizona and uh, hospitals were at 40% capacity. They usually like to be about 75, 80% capacity because that's what kind of keeps them solvent. So they were at 40% capacity, we were laying off nurses and other staff and doctors if they work in hospitals. So he lifted the ban on elective surgery. Then as people, and then he started relaxing all of the restrictions. And then in June, the virus kind of made its way to Arizona and then of course, I could have told him, because I learned this before I went to medical school, I learned this when I was a biology major in college, that it's not like the virus goes away if you hide from it. It's still there. In fact, some of these people who are not getting their children vaccinated against measles 
we're seeing measles cases come back after 20 years of no measles cases. It's not like the virus goes away. So when you take a bunch of healthy people and insulate them so they can't catch it, are you surprised that when they come out, they catch it? Of course, you should be isolating the sick and contagious people, not the healthy people. <laughs> so that's what we did. We isolated for the first time in medical history, isolated healthy people. So um, cases started going up, but this time the governor didn't make the same mistake. He let happen what has been always the case because every couple of years, the CDC warns us, we're expecting a horrible flu season this year, you know, be on alert. And the hospitals, different hospitals have different patient populations and different realities that they're having to work with. And they work with the medical staff. So um, the hospitals will tell us surgeons, uh, look, we're getting overloaded with flu cases right now. Um, before you bring in your next elective surgery, could you talk to us? Because we may not have room, we may ask you to hold off for a couple of weeks. And each hospital and each community on a case-by-case, -case, you know, individual basis based on local knowledge, works it out. So that's what the governor allowed to happen this time. So sure enough, uh, my group, we're 11 surgeons now, it's grown. And um, we use two hospital systems. One is five beds, one has five hospitals, one has seven. The seven hospital system never reached a level where they asked us to hold off on elective surgery. But the five hospital system had a lot of major critical care centers and they got uh, inundated. And for a two week stretch there in mid-July, they asked us to not schedule any more elective procedures and they'll let us know. And then after two weeks, they said, okay, uh, it's calming down now, you can start bringing them in again. That's the way it should have been handled in the first place. Now, so getting back to the original question, um, once we were allowed to start doing elective procedures, we started calling all these patients who we had seen already, who were on hold, they needed their gallbladders removed or whatever, and we called them and said, okay, the coast is clear. You can come on in. We can talk about scheduling your procedure. And a lot of them would say, no, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm afraid I'm going to catch it. So, the, but the people who arrived in, in, in our office, it's sort of self-selected. The people that we see in our office are people who are not, you know, overcome by fear. So they'd come into the office and, uh, and schedule a surgery. They weren't worried about scheduling the surgery. So that was one problem. And we're still seeing it even now for the time of year, business is in all kinds of medical practices slower than usual uh, because a lot of people are still afraid to go to the doctor's office. And you probably have read, uh, it was reaching a real serious level where a lot of parents were afraid to bring their young children in for their scheduled immunizations. Um, and, and some you know, young children, there's some critical periods where they need certain immunizations where it could have serious public health consequences not to get them. And the parents were afraid to bring them into the pediatrician's office. And the pediatricians were making arrangements. They were doing things like coming down to the car and giving your kid a vaccination in the car, in the parking lot. They were, they were willing to make all these kind of accommodations because they, they wanted these kids to get immunized. But a lot of parents, uh, immunizations were way down. And, and, and still at this point, there are a lot of people showing up in the emergency room with much more advanced conditions that had they gone to their doctors sooner, they may not have been emergencies. So that's, so that's the kind of thing we deal with. We deal with people who are afraid to get help because they're not putting things to perspective, not realizing that there's a 95% chance that if you contract the virus, you won't be sick enough to be in the hospital. 95% chance. And if you're 
a 40-year-old healthy person, you shouldn't let the risk of catching the COVID-19 stop you from getting a necessary cancer screening procedure, for example. So, and we're seeing delays now in diagnoses of things that is affecting the prognosis. Wow. Um, so, uh, Larry Borland. Hey, Larry. So good to see you. Also, a longtime Alice Society supporter. I have a few observations, uh, including, uh, we'll, I'll take just one quick one because we're coming up on the top of the hour about SDS, not true for some of the leaders who were violent. And maybe I'll, I'll, I'll agree to that. I mean, I think there were bombings of certain uh, you know, police stations and things like that. But yeah, that's true. It's just, Let's put it this way, the SDS students on campus weren't just kind of, you know, setting fires in downtown randomly and, right. you know, smashing in looting window stores and things like that. It wasn't like today. I just think Antifa is a more um, virulent strain, let's say. It is. It is a nihilistic, and we have um, many videos on this, as you all know, uh, talking about um, socialism as a SDT, a socially transmitted disease, and that is something that the Atlas Society is seeking to inoculate young minds. Um, it's why we have our graphic novel, it's why we have our animated videos, it's why we have our pocket guides, and also why we have these forums which um, allow for a little bit of a deeper dive into some of these subjects with people that are part of our community. Uh, I'd also like to remind all of you who, who are um, either new to the Atlas Society, are supporting us at a certain level, or yet to support us, uh, that our chairman, um, is uh, Jay LaPere, is matching all new and all increased um, donations. So uh, please take an opportunity if you're enjoying this content, if you think it's important for us to do more and share this with more people, uh, to join Dr. Singer and join so many of the people that are on the call. And uh, yeah, supporting, supporting what we're doing. I really appreciate it. Happy birthday, Michael uh, Newberry, who was on a recent, um, recent one of our lives. And thank you so much, Jeffrey. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to see you. It's, it's, uh, you are just on fire in terms of the work that you are doing right now. And it was a real privilege to be able to have you join us and say, share some of your thoughts with our audience. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.